Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Thursday gatherings. Uh, today happens to be Earth Day, which is an auspicious day. I, I just listened to um, Joanna Macy. Do you know who she is? She's like 93 years old. Um, I think I saw Karen's name there. I think, yeah, some, some people I see here were there. She's a, a rock star. Um, she's written a number of books. She's really like the queen of the whole um, Buddhism ecology movement. And she wrote a book quite a few decades ago that really had a big impact on me, uh, Mutual Causality in Buddhism in General Systems Theory. It's a big complex title, but it, it's brilliant. It's really great. And so, yeah, she gave this really um, lovely poignant riff on what's happening today, right? Um, so along those lines, I, I watched a very powerful film the other day that I, I asked Andy, we're going to uh, watch it on one of the upcoming Saturday night movie nights. Um, uh, maybe you've seen it already. Seaside, uh, Seaside, S-E-A, and then like as in suicide. It's a really good, really challenging documentary. I had to watch it in two, two nights. It was so intense because of the, just how much it reveals. Um, really disturbing in a good way, uh, if there is such a thing as a good way to be disturbed. <laughs> So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, but we're gonna, we're gonna show it. Cause I, I was thinking, you know, sometimes I think about, oh, this isn't the right platform. You know, we have to do all this spiritual stuff. We have to stay on the meditation track. But it's like my friend David Loy writes about in his book, Eco Dharma, Buddhist teachings for the ecological crisis that um, if we can't apply what we're doing to what's happening in the world today, you know, just the social thing, the, all the isms, racism, you name it, um, in the, in the uh, ecological situation, what relevance are these teachings? You know, what, why are we doing this stuff just to feel better, to escape? So anyway, on this um, Earth Day, it's nice to, to bow a little bit towards Mother Earth because uh, uh, on behalf of, of us, she's in a heap of hurt. <laughs> and we, we need to do something about it, really. So I have a flight in a couple hours, so I have to keep this particular session of um, maybe on the 50 minute mark. And because of that, I'm gonna go right to some of the questions that were submitted. And so those of you who want to ask questions can certainly get that in line. Um, usually I do a little bit longer riff and then transition over, <clears throat> but because I have to fly out, I just wanted to, mostly what we do here, we've done it for over a year, is just hang out and, and talk about stuff. So um, a couple of questions came in. So I'll start with those. And then if anybody has anything else, live chat or, or something in the chat, a live question, raise your hand. Otherwise you can put something in the chat or ping it to Andy and he'll put it in the doc. So, okay, so let's start here and then see where this takes us. So from uh, someone anonymous. Hi Andrew, recently I met a respected teacher, Lama, and I was really struck by the impact he had on me. I felt intense energy in my body that stayed for a long time after this meeting with him. It increasingly became difficult to focus on work or even sleep. I kept waking up all through the night and by day seven after this meeting, I was exhausted from the lack of sleep and the anxiety that then ensued. I was a bit worried for myself by the end of the week because I found myself in quite a dark place. Finally, after a lot of pain, and I'm assuming mostly self-created suffering, I was able to do Tonglin for myself and the pain just vanished. 
Very cool. I feel like I was possessed by a demon that whole time. Any idea what might have been going on? Why such an extreme reaction? I'm also curious about the energy display. It was almost a passion and a desire to possess. <clears throat> I didn't feel any agitation, just a pure feeling of passion in a very vivid way. I'm kind of confused with the whole experience because I had no control over most of it. Both the initial euphoria of the meeting and the subsequent barter-like endless misery that continued. I'm thinking also that my reaction may be habitual contraction, like you mentioned in the early chapters of your Dreams of Life book. Any understanding? Any help understanding this experience? Okay, well, thank you for the courage to share this. Um, ooh, tricky one, right? Uh, well, novel <sighs> above my pay grade. And by this, what I mean is I'm not a therapist. So I, I don't want to um, kind of be a dilettante and, and tap into things that I'm just not trained to work with. But I can give you perhaps some general overarching impressions. Um, and one thing I, you know, a little bit like, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, everyone, I think I might have shared this. Every once in a while, I actually do read the Dear Abby thing in my paper. Just, I don't know why, just for the heck of it, right? Sometimes the, 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 the lead magnet, the clickbait, clickbait is enough that it clicks me in. And so um, I, the one thing I appreciate about her, I don't even know who it is anymore, Dear Abby. I don't know who the person is, but you get it, the Dear Abby person. What I do appreciate about this, her, her responses is very, very often she says, and I used to think it's a cop-out, but it's not a cop-out. You know, it really would be good to work with a therapist, a counselor, or somebody in, in a professional capacity. And so I do say that uh, actually with some seriousness, but then I'll give you some of my general first hits on this. Um, because of the, the, the overwhelming impact of this, some of which was so so-called negative, I, I think um, there was, you know, and this happens unbelievably commonly, especially with charged teacher-student relationships. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Most assuredly, some kind of projection transference thing going on. Um, I mean, this happens like all the time. And we're always projecting, we're always engaged in this transference, counter-transference thing. Either shadow boxing or shadow hugging. And by this, what I mean is that shadows, this is, you know, Jung's phrase for, um, elements that are kind of held within the unconscious, unconscious minds, these are not, these shadows are not always um, dark. You know, the, the implication seems to be that it's just all the shadow boxing, you know, we're projecting all these negative shadows, but sometimes it's, it's uh, what they call the golden shadow, where what you do then is, is not only do you project your negative BS on people, we do this like all the time, but we also project our golden qualities out to people. And then we, then we do this kind of shadow hugging thing. And so one of the little maxims that I read decades ago that really has traction for me still um, is that when something affects you more than it informs you, you're probably dealing with a projection, right? Um, if something affects you more than it informs you. And so you were profoundly affected. So projection was involved. Um, and when that projection is involved, then like we've talked about in the Dreams of Light book, what have you done? You've unwittingly imbued this person with a power they don't inherently have. So it happens in a heartbeat sometimes, and I'll tell you where some of this actually can be lodged and how it comes up and what actually may have triggered this for you. 
But the reason they had such an impact, this person does not have this power over you unless you somehow confer it upon them. So in a very rapid fire way, you know, you imbued this person with this power. Um, and then, you know, what you reveal about the, the grasping passion thing also reveals a little bit more of this, this kind of shadow work. And, um, you know, the fact this this desire to possess. So that's definitely, you know, sort of ego raising its head, getting involved in the mix. This stuff gets really tricky, really tricky when you're when you're working with teachers, uh, especially if, as you put it, a respected teacher who I'm sure has tremendous, you know, really great qualities. Um, and so again, like what we do is we 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 just plaster this per person, poor person, with all our stuff, and then so we're we're actually uh, working with our own material projected onto this. The intensity of that certainly suggests it. And so what's happening. You know, the, also it came to mind quite immediately when I read this was there was, you know, samskara was triggered, right? So I've riffed quite a bit about these samskaras. These are super important topics. It's basically Buddhist Hindu ways of talking about these undigested, unmetabolized, unprocessed psychic cysts, residues that are lodged in the unconscious mind. And so whenever something has this kind of disproportionate um, effect, there's definitely a samskara being triggered. So somewhere in the past, who knows what, right? Some karmic thing, who knows? This is where really a therapist can really help you tease, tease this apart. Um, there is some undigested, unmetabolized, unprocessed um, material. And, and so somehow karmically or whatever, the samskara was triggered. Because obviously, you know, a, well, a ton of other people would probably meet the same person and have nothing like your reaction. So you're bringing your history, right, to this person. And so if, if, if it was all like super positive stuff, that's more shadow hugging. There's a little bit of that, but this is more shadow boxing to me. That's why it left you with this kind of bitter taste. Um, and so it's also very interesting here about how you felt powerless. Um, I had no control over it. Well, that's because you gave your control away, whether you know it or not. Nobody has this kind of power to control you unless you unwittingly confer it upon them. Um, so this is really delicate. You know, I, I, I'm definitely not trying to become a therapist here, but this is the sort of stuff, honestly, I find this super interesting. And honestly, if I were you, I, I would talk to somebody who can help. And I, if you want to, behind the scenes, write to me or Andy, I can refer you to some extremely gifted therapists. I work with them. Um, that can maybe have, perhaps help you tease this apart because you know the the reactivity was was disproportionate to the actual uh, event, and so therefore some history you know was definitely triggered. So the details of that I can't say. Um, I mean this is something that really has to be picked apart in with real authenticity, power, and someone who knows what they're doing. But the underlying processes, the underlying mechanism, phenomenology, I think is somewhere along these lines that you know, when there's this, this really powerful reaction, there's a combination of projection, transference, and also your know, triggers of these samskaras. Um, so you know, the fact that you did Tonglin um, for yourself is fantastic and that the, that the pain just kind of vanished. I mean, you say some very insightful things here and that's really pretty darn good. You know, that there, there was a way for you to kind of ride that experience. And so maybe I'll let that go for now. Um, 
thank you for sharing. It takes courage to do that in a, in a platform like this. Um, but that's what that's what first comes to mind on this. And if I were you, I, I again, write to me, write to Andy. I'll give you the name behind the scenes of some people that I either work with very personally or people I know that are really good in this area that can help you tease this apart. Um, because otherwise those processes are probably still there. Um, they are for all of us and they'll be triggered in another event some other time. Um, so yeah, I think if, if you read the Dreams of Light book, right? I think there's several, I think, I can't remember. I know for sure if you didn't, there's stuff in some of my, I sound like a cheap car salesman here, but um, I've, I've recently posted some classes where I talk a lot about projection and the imbuing of this power. It's called Shenlong into that other power where we, you know, again, we, we, we transfer this power onto others that they don't inherently have. We do it all the time. So that's what comes to mind here and um, probably the best I can do with it for now. Okay, from Kathy, could you please ask Andrew? Yes, uh, if space has consciousness, because I know physics explains the cosmos is made of over 99.9%, space. Yeah, well, it's actually more than that. It's 99 point um, followed by 13 zeros, <laughs> space, right? So it's, it's almost all space, but this is an interesting one. If you're talking about physical space, uh, you know, it, this is one of these yes, no questions that on one level, what you're talking about um, is, is a form of panpsychism where this is a, a kind of a view that everything has mind um, properties, consciousness, everything, you know, it's like it's uh, turtles all the way down even, even to so-called empty space. I think one has to be really careful with this sort of thing um, because, well, let me, let me just say something before I forget about just space itself, so-called physical space, before I talk about mind space, because they're not, and this is where it gets interesting because not, they're not the same, nor are they different. And so if we talk about physical space, um, space doesn't have consciousness. If we talk about space as mind space, that's where it gets a little bit more interesting. But physical space itself is not empty. Um, it's just, you know, loaded and the place to go here, you know, read the work of David Bohm, right? Especially wholeness in the implicate order. And this is what the implicate order is all about. You know, that in the thimble full of space, there's more energy than like all the matter in the universe. So some like ridiculous amount It's called the zero point energy uh, field in, in physics. Um, so right off the bat, empty space is not empty. It, it's actually full of tremendous energy. And it's also full of infinite forms of information. You know, trillions of neutrinos are flowing through it. Now, this is, we're talking about pure physics. Um, countless forms of electromagnetic radiation, magnetic radiation from super long radio waves to super short gamma waves. What we call empty space is just saturated with information. But it's not conscious in that sense. Um, and this is why I, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of panpsychism. It's just one of two extreme ways to try to solve a mind-body problem. The other way is idealism. So you either, with panpsychism, you infuse mind into matter, in this case, space. In, in idealism, you, you do it the other way around. Um, it's, it's just the, the opposite of that. And so I'm, I don't adhere to the principles of panpsychism. So on that level, space is not conscious. But if you're talking about now about space awareness, 
from a more Dzogchen Mahamudra point of view, then that's a different story. But again, it's not the same as physical space. I mean, this, this is not conscious. It, it has no responsivity. It has no sentience. Um, sentience is a subset of consciousness, and that's defined by that which can perceive pleasure or pain. Well, I can burn, bomb, cut this space, and there's no reactivity to that. So it's not sentient. It's not conscious in that way. But there is a, a deeper, more subtle exploration of the space when you start talking, um, which you mentioned in your second question, which I'll now turn to, that maybe can add a little bit of interest to you um, from a Hindu perspective. So this is the second part from, of your question. When we generate bodhicitta, bliss, and dedicated to all beings, are we investing into this space? Uh, okay, or so different appearances can arise. Uh, no, I don't think so. In other words, can we say space is stored karma? Again, no, not physical space. But this is where, again, things get really interesting. So don't reduce everything into uh, so-called physical space. Uh, because if you do, the tenets of what you're saying don't hold, in my opinion. But one area where you can look here, and if I were you, I'd recommend it, is um, in, the, in Vedic philosophy, where they talk about the Akasha. You know, um, I, I'm not a, you know, super informed in this, but I do know a little bit about it. I remember, in fact, many, many years ago, we're talking decades ago, actually, I, I had a very powerful uh, experience with what's called an Akashic mediator. So I'll come back to what Akashic records are and Akashic mediators, you may know this, but this is, if I were you, I would bark up this tree, where in, in the Brahmanic um, Hindu traditions, you know, Brahman is this kind of unmanifest energy of creation. It, it infiltrates everything. And so on one level, you'll, uh, and from this perspective, you could say Brahman, Dharmakaya, in Buddhist language, Dharmadhatu, infuses absolutely everything. Um, so you can't say it's physical space, but you can't say it's not physical space. It's, it's beyond categorizations. But where it gets somewhat interesting, and I invite you to look at it, is that what's called Akasha, A-K-A-S, A-K-A-S-H, Akasha, Akasha, is really the first manifestation of this Brahman energy um, actually coming into so-called form. It would be somewhat akin to what we call Sambhogakaya in the Buddhist tradition. And, and this is a, a subtle energetic basis. You know, it's really easy to conjoin it with what's called the zero point energy field in physics. Is it the same thing? I don't know if anybody can answer that question. Um, but there are, you know, the, they, the words sound the same. They seem to refer to the same thing. So I'm agnostic on this. This is an open question for me. But if I were you, I would look here. Look at the Akasha. Look at things like the Akashic records. Because this is where, according to this view of reality, everything is fundamentally stored. It's, it's kind of a, a collective, in Buddhist terms, a kind of collective alia vijna, or this collective unconsciousness. It's a field that stores everything, at least according to the Brahmanical point of view. So um, I'll probably let that go um, because I'm not an, you know, an expert in Vedic approaches to this, but it's, it's just to me, Kathy, it's a, I would raise your gaze and, and don't try to reduce everything into so-called physical space. Um, you know, look at the relationship of, of space to space awareness, realizing that, that what we call physical space and I've said this many times, just like light, it's not the same as the space of the mind, but it's also not different. And that's why this question, you know, you, you can't just throw the, you can't throw the whole thing away because then you throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
So just one has to be really careful to make these kind of um, connections. They're very tempting to do, but they also can lead to some kind of uh, mistake called category errors and things like that, where you think they're talking about the same thing because they're using the same words, but they're not. So unless you have something else you wanna say about that, that's where I would go, read about the zero point field energy stuff. If you wanna read about it, you know, the science behind it is not so simple. Um, people who do talk about it with some regularity, Deepak Chopra actually um, riffs on this quite a bit. Again, anything on, on Vedic deep philosophy and the Akasha riffs on this sort of thing. So um, the implicate order um, in David Bohm's work, that kind of thing. That's where I would go if you wanna know more. Okay, from Tim. In my understanding of projection, in my understanding projection is an unconscious process which we need to withdraw to become more complete and whole. So in a way, is not our whole spiritual journey a withdrawal of projections? Great comment, my friend, great questions. Yes, on one level, absolutely. Yeah, so here's, here's the way this works. This is a colossal topic. This is so interesting to me. So let's go to the very source of this for a second. This is worth riffing on. Um, in a certain sense, you can say it starts in the bardos, but remember, the bardos are bidirectional. You know, the, there is no single point um, source. Uh, in other words, what happens in the bardos is just another iteration of what's happening now. But let's use the bardos as an exaggerated instance of this, and then you can start to extrapolate how it works now. And that is that in the luminous bardo dharmata, you, when you return to this primordial space light, of mind, then what takes place is, is just the absolute utter radiance of the mind, radiance, where in, in the Bardo Dharma type, it's, it radiates out. This is not a projection. This is radiance, where the lights of the mind shine and the, the deities shine and all the four stages of that Bardo shine. But then what happens is, because we don't recognize that radiance, then we flip into the karmic bardo becoming where radiance is perverted into projection. And then right there, the whole, exactly like you're saying, this is the start of the whole samsaric agenda where mind reality then gets lost in its display. So in, in, the, in the luminous bardo of Dharma the, the, the essence and the display are unified. That's the enlightened state but we don't recognize that as such. And so then the, the display breaks away from the essence. The luminosity breaks away from the essence. And then we get, it, we get basically addicted to light. Really, we're all on a deeper level. We're all, we're all light junkies, really. We're, we're addicted to frozen light. And so um, the, the display breaks away from the essence it's, and then it's, it's projected out in a way. This is the leaping of the mother and child luminosity when the child jumps out of the lap of the mother. So the cosmology here is super interesting. And I, I wanna say this, this may seem a little bit abstract, um, this, because this is the root of all the, pro, all projections start from this. And so, so then upon that prim, primordial projection of other, otherness, you know, duality is instantly created and we lose the essence of the display. We lose it in the projection. That's what throws us out of the dharmata into the bardo becoming. That's what throws us out of the bardo becoming into life. That's what throws us away from the dharmata right now, moment to moment. Every time we leap after a thought, an image, a thing, whatever, we're basically um, running after our projections. 
And so the projection principle is, is extraordinarily powerful and, and multifaceted. There are so many layers of it. So the first primordial archetypal projection is in fact the projection of duality. The projection that there isn't out there, out there. There isn't, even in physics, right? You've heard me say this. John Wheeler, physicist, student of Einstein. There is no out there, out there. There is no out there, out there. <laughs> I love it. But we project, we freeze. And so this is the primordial projection of duality. And then upon that, then ego builds its very sick church, right? So then you have all these other layers of projection, the psychological things, all the stuff we're talking about just gets heaped on top of that layer after layer after layer based on these unconscious processes, all of which are based on ignorance. And so just like you say, Tim, in exactly that, in exactly that way, the spiritual journey is about um, owning up to projections, doing, and I like actually I like integral approach to this, um, what they call three, two, one shadow work. Uh, you can read about it in Integral Life Practice, this book. It's really clever, really very insightful way to take ownership of our projections, mostly from a psychological stance, but it can actually take you back to this ontological projection. So what you're saying, absolutely, is the withdrawal of the projections all the way back in these layers. It's this multi-layered wedding cake, right? This is the marriage to duality, the marriage to samsara, this multi-leveled wedding cake. What a great image of, of projection on top of projection on top of projection. And just like you're saying, the path is withdrawal from that. And so this is also why psychological work, shadow work, um, really becomes handy because it's part of this process of ownership, owning up, you know, taking responsibility. And so it takes a lot of guts to do this because we then discover through this work that we can't blame anybody for our suffering or our happiness. We can only look in the mirror because we're the ones that project the world in our image. Um, and so a great comment, the whole thing, absolutely. You can look at it as withdrawal ownership of projections for sure. Okay, Evelyn, during the recent Pureland weekend with Menla, you said you could spend a whole weekend unpacking the Sadhana Mahamudra. Oh yeah, easy. Would you please do that? <laughs> spend a weekend unpacking the Sadhana? Uh, I, yeah, maybe, let me think about it, Evelyn. I, I, I used to teach on this, this uh, thing quite a bit years ago. Um, for those of you who may not know this masterpiece, uh, this is an unbelievable composition. It's, it's what's called a terma, which means it's a treasure text discovered by Trungpa Rinpoche. It was actually written in what's called mind space. There's that term again, by the Tantric Buddha Padmasambhava. And there's so much to say here, but you know, just like the Tibetan Book of the Dead was, was kind of co-authored or channeled by Karma Lingpa. It was written by Padmasambhava, but, but channeled and co-authored by Karma Lingpa. Sadhana Mahamudu was written by Padmasambhava, but channeled, co-authored by Trungpa Rinpoche. It's, a, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's, it's by far the most profound liturgy I've ever come across. And the fact that it's in the public domain is just breathtaking. Um, this is my desert island liturgy. I don't know anything as powerful as this practice. And so what Evelyn's referring to is when we did this tantric Pure Land weekend, I use that as because on one level, the Sadhana Mahamudra is a tantric Pure Land practice. It's also a protector practice. It's also a guru yoga. It's, it's everything. It's, there's, it's just unbelievable. It's so profound. So let me think about it. Um, let me think about it. I, again, I, I, I used to do it a ton. I don't have any of that stuff recorded. Or if I do somewhere, it's probably on a... On a 
cassette or something, you know, it's probably actually written in palm leaves somewhere, right? I, I taught it so long ago, I don't even think they had electronics in those ages. I think just like the sutras, it was carved in stone or put in palm leaves somewhere. So let me see if I can find the palm leaves. <laughs> I'd love to do it. Uh, it's just a matter of how many people would actually come to it because it's, it's, it's somewhat esoteric, um, but it is beyond profound. So I'll, I'll plant the seed. Evelyn, and then we'll see if it comes to fruition, okay? It's an amazing piece. <laughs> okay, from Glenn. Any comments on the work of Michael Levin on electrical communication structures guiding the growth of cells into body parts and normal and abnormal organisms? <laughs> oh, Glenn, you, you cracked me up, dude. Um, again, I, I'm laughing with you, not at you. It's like... Um, uh, in short, no, I, I, I don't know this person. Um, <clears throat> it sounds really cool. Maybe if you're here, you can come on and, and say a little bit of why you're interested in this. But I don't know about electrical communication structures gliding, guiding the growth cells into body parts. Um, it I'm sounds here if you want me to bring okay, yeah, it sounds super cool. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, uh, this, one, this one draws a total blank for me. So please fire away. What 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 grooves you on this one? Well, so my YouTube feed said, ah, you should see this new TED interview. I guess the TED talks turned into TED interviews during COVID, and it's with this uh, young professor. Um, I don't have a biology background. I mean, I have the background to understand. But what it appears that he and his laboratories have done is test apart the, uh, a tadpole, for example, and, and break its uh, early formation into cells into a lot of different separate parts. And then what they observed before they break it apart is there's actually electrical communication occurring between all the cells as if the cells are neurons. And they've been able to manipulate those electrical communications and produce absolutely bizarre organisms or take some of the stem cells and fiddle around with their electric things and produce these brainless, uh, intestineless objects that go around and move. And it's, it's a sense that there's an electrical field operating on a series of cells that basically controls the growth, completion, termination of the growth, um, and which is independent of DNA, although not necessarily independent of RNA. So I thought, I've never come across it before. And I said, this is amazing. It's an electrical field concept controlling growth, right? So. Well, that's awesome. I mean, uh, tongue in cheek, what totally came to mind is when you said that it creates bizarre beings that are brain brainless. Well, that's probably what happened to me. That's how, yeah. that's how I came into existence, a bizarre brainless being. So I should I should learn about what brought me into existence. But what, what does come to mind, I, I love this kind of stuff. And thank you for bringing it to my attention. It, it does a little bit click into um, some of the epigenetic stuff. And again, um, I think it was Bruce Lipton, I'm not sure. It's a really interesting way of, of talking about something akin to this when he talks about, um, and it's a wonderful play on words, you know, how, uh, in fact, Candace Pert says something quite similar that each one of our 50 trillion cells, they should actually be looked up across, looked upon as actually 50 trillion little brains. 
Um, and in fact, he has a wonderful play on the word membrane actually should be mem, B-R-A-I-N, that there's a whole lot going on that is, is uh, I can't even, I'm not sure you can say transgenetic, I'm not sure that's the right word, but there's, you know, there's something interesting happening in, in electrical arenas, in field arenas and that sort of thing. So again, I'm not a biologist either, um, but I think what you're sharing is really cool and, you know, it's something that, uh, what's the name of the guy who did it? What's the name of the Ted? Yeah, um, Michael Levin. Oh yeah, Michael Levin. So if you go to YouTube, you'll find all sorts of stuff. I guess he's one of the hottest new young scientists around. So, and so what, what's his background? Is he a geneticist or molecular biologist? He's everything. He's everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He appears to be everything. A polymath. He's a biologist. He's a bioengineer. He's a programmer. Um, you know, he's phrasing a lot of it in, in uh, neural net uh, stuff. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll check it out. I don't know anything about it. So thanks for, thanks yeah. for, well, if you find something, let us know. Yeah. I'm sure it's what brought me into being as a, a bizarre frame <laughs> as being now I, uh, I'll go look for mommy. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So from Kara, is there a luminous bardo of Dharmata and the descending sleep process? Meaning is there a luminous place we fall we fail to recognize in our nightly travels. For sure, absolutely. Yes, it's correlative to deep dreamless sleep and, and in fact can be accessed with things like um, sleep yoga. So absolutely 100%. You know, this is the uh, cool thing about Bardo's Bardo principle is their fractal nature, their reiterative nature that what we look at when we talk about the, you know, the Bardo Dharmata at the end of life, that's just the most pronounced example demonstration of bardos that occur every night when we fall asleep and, and even more nuance between each and every thought. So this is the reiterative quality. Um, it's actually called um, uh, the principle of universality in philosophical circles um, where you, you have these echoes of these processes occurring at all these different dimensions. And so absolutely, um, that's why the practice is actually called, in Tibetan, it's called Ursul, um, O-S-E-L, which means luminosity. So sleep yoga is actually luminosity yoga. So when, when you fall into deep dreamless sleep with awareness, you fall into this black light. And parenthetically, uh, you know, I, I'm involved, in, um, you'll hear this in the interview we just released yesterday with Benjamin Baird because he's a neuroscientist who's actually a really smart guy who's working now with a bunch of other people to actually try to substantiate, you know, this claim for ages that you can maintain awareness and deep dreamless sleep. That has not been um, scientifically proven yet. It's super hard. So I'm a little bit involved with these people trying to study, you know, create um, study designs and things for that. But in short, absolutely positively, um, but again, to make it even more intimate, immediate, you don't even have to wait to fall asleep to see the dharmata. It, it abides um, between each and every thought, really, really. If you pay very close attention to your mind, in fact, Sagar uh, uh, Rinpoche says that the space between your thoughts, beautiful image, is your passport into the bardos, because that is exactly, it's, it's, it's a micro instantiation of what you're going to experience at the end of your life. So absolutely, 100%. So Virginia, 
Yeah, I heard the jo Joanna Macy thing too. It was really beautiful. What a, again, I started with some comments about her. She's a, a rock star. In fact, I just, David Lloyd just gave me her most recent book, uh, Wild Love for the World, which actually is an anthology in honor of Joanna. So she's a, she's a superstar. So anyway, I just heard Joanna, I did too. It's the keynote celebration for Earth Justice Day. She spoke about work that we can do on the inner level as we, as well as work we need to do on the outer level so that we can achieve environmental social justice. Can you speak to these inner and outer levels in terms of what is most helpful for us, Buddhist practitioners, Paran Buddhist practitioners, but probably many of us are also environmental racial justice seekers and Paran. So in other words, can you speak to these inner and outer levels, what is most helpful to do in this lifetime? Yeah, I can a little bit. Um, first of all, it, it's, it's the work of our time. This is the work of our age. Because if we don't do it, we're done. Uh, really, and the more, the more data, watch this movie, Seaside. I mean, watch or read the book, Uninhabitable Earth, uh, Uninhabitable Earth, read David Lloyd. I mean, there's so much of this stuff. This is, you know, if you, if, here's the deal. It's a little bit like I'm teaching on emptiness. If you are not shocked by what's happening to this planet, you don't know what's happening to this planet. And again, I don't mean to get on my soapbox and preach. I'm sure everybody here knows, but I, I think I'm pretty well informed. And then I watch something like CSI or read another book and it's like, every time I read it, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. And it's happening faster. So we're in the sixth mass, mass extinction for sure. Um, all the previous five, not our fault, this one, totally our fault. Um, it's because we have technologies that are not correlative to the intelligences that harness them and work with them. In other words, you have a bunch of idiots who have their hands on these, you know, look at what they do with, with fishing, industrialized mass genocide of the sea. If the sea dies, we die. We came from the ocean, we're killing the ocean, that's not, hence the word suicide. The ocean is dying, and that means we are dying. And so I used to be, you know, maybe you missed my rant at the beginning, much more kind of spiritually correct, right? Oh, oh, don't say that. It's not, you know, don't, don't ruffle my spiritual feathers. I, I think for all of us here now, we're, we're turning that tide because now we're really sensitive to it. So really for me, this is the work of our age because if we don't do it, we're done. I mean, really, we are done. The, the earth will scrape us off like a cancer. And then, you know, the earth itself will heal, just like when you excise a tumor, but we won't be around. So the earth is in super deep trouble. And so what Joanna says and, and so many other amazing ecosattvas, ecosattvas say, you know, the, the, the outer work starts with inner processes. So the reason it's so effed up out there is because the people that have so much power um, have not done the inner work. They see the world in a completely distorted fashion as a natural resource to be abused, polluted, everything that's happening. And so fundamentally, the, the, the trajectories here are, in fact, just like you're saying, they're twofold. We work on both the inner and outer because if we don't, if we don't do some inner work, then again, we get lost in projections and we, get, we can get aggressive and violent like the people, you know, I was, I was skiing in Vail a couple of weeks ago and, and um, was reminded that a couple of years ago, this, you know, stunningly beautiful 
um, lodge was completely burned down by these eco-terrorists. I mean, that's not the way, that's not what you do. I mean, what good is that, right? So we work, we do both tracks. We work on the outer, we work on the inner. This is, this is really a, another reason when I finished my riff on the Tantric Pure Lands with, with Bob Thurman, that's where we both went, that this is actually has traction in the Pure Land principle. But right now the world is impure because we're impure. And so as the Dalai Lama says, you know, in terms of disarmament, we work with inner disarmament first, and then we work with external. So yes, it's a, it's a, it's a twofold vector. It's twofold trajectory where you work with the outer and the inner and, and don't wait to achieve your version of some lofty spiritual state to start working with the outer. In other words, you know, you can start doing it right now. Um, and there's, again, there's so much to be said and done here. I'm going to refer you, Virginia, if you haven't read David Loy's most recent book, Eco Dharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis, I highly recommend it. It's, it's really one of the better ones. And one of the reasons I really like it is at the end of the book, again, so much beyond our scope of what we can talk about here. He talks about things we can do very directly. So I, I highly encourage you to, uh, to read David's book. He's into this in a massive way, as is Joanna. But good for you for listening to it. I think really for each of us, um, we got to do something here. Um, and that's the good news that David shares. And there, there is a little bit of light that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of these small pockets of sanity, you know, commergent with this darkness, there is some light. So that, that doesn't mean we should give up hope. Um, it means just we, we really do need to do something because, um, you know, we're inextricably connected to this planet in the deepest of ecologies. And uh, by not taking care of it, we're, we're just going to wipe ourselves out. So I, you'll understand this. So I would do both, you know, read David's book, read Joanna's work, um, engage in the inner purification processes. That's what the path is about. And then, you know, get off your cushion and, and work in the world. A vegan, don't eat fish, don't eat meat. You know, I'm, I'm, it's not easy. I, I like fish, not anymore. Um, it, you just don't, just literally stop eating fish. I'm not kidding. Um, don't eat meat. I mean, you, you know what this does, the agriculture industry, one of the major sources of, of, of carbon pollution, um, unless you think you're eating good, clean fish, no way, because the, you know, the hundreds of trillions of tons of plastic that's dumped into the ocean breaks down and guess who eats it? The fish. Guess who eats the fish? We do. So these levels of toxicity, again, this is why it really is fundamentally tantamount to suicide. So, uh, you know, I probably ought to back off. Uh, um, actually, maybe I shouldn't, but maybe I will. <laughs> we, none of us should back off at this point because especially if you have kids, what kind of a planet are you going to leave them, right? It's like these kids are gonna look back upon this time and say, what the F were these people thinking, right? Right, that'd be, that'd be us, that'd be our time. So it is time for us to get off our cushions, engage, be active politically, be active personally, cut the plastic thing, cut the meat thing, become a vegan, really. Um, oh, I got a joke, so we don't take this stuff all like too heavy, super serious. Uh, how can you tell if there's a vegan in the world in the room? Have you heard this one? How can you tell if there's a vegan in the room? They'll tell you. <laughs> so anyway, I throw that a little bit gallows humor in here. 
So um, I'll, let, I'll let that go for now, Virginia, but thank you so much for bringing it up. I think we as spiritual practitioners need to be a little bit more fearless about this. Otherwise, what we're doing is just a feel-good strategy. It turns into spiritual bypassing. Um, in fact, I heard, I think Ken Wilber shared the story with me that he, you know, he was talking to some, some big spiritual person. And this, this guy um, actually said to Ken, he goes, ah, you know, I'm not that really that concerned. I'm going to a pure land when I die. I mean, what? Really? So that's the near enemy of, of spiritual practice, of spiritual bypassing. Oh, it's all an illusion. It's all a dream. Who cares what happens? I'm going to FedEx into Sukhavati when I die. Oh, good Lord. I mean, no, no. It's, it's right here, right now, and it's time for us to do something. So thanks for the opportunity, Virginia, to riff on that a little bit more. Um, dive into it. Act personally. You know, think globally. Act locally. That stuff works. Um, you, you know, I think you know the implementation strategies. But if you don't, read David Loy's book. He gives you a ton of really good information about what to do. Now's the time to do it. Otherwise, you know, it's not just the Dharma that's not going to survive. This human, this human homo sapiens sapiens can be us. I think, what is it, Yuval Noah Harari, or somebody says, I can't remember what, you know, over like 95% something plus of species goes extinct. Why should we be any different? We're not. We're killing ourselves. Okay. Um, Charlesy, were you born intestineless as well? Oh, yes. Were you then born intestineless as well? Yes, gutless. I was born a little gutless. But now I have more guts, and that's why I'm riffing on exactly what I said, because I do have a little bit more guts. <laughs> it's time to stand up and, and take some shots and, and just do what needs to be done. So yes, I would, I would, I would have to say I was born a little gutless, for sure. Um, poverty mentality, but I've changed that, you know? I think we actually all do have a lot of power. So anyway, that's my little political riff for today. Um, anybody else before I, I got, ooh, Actually, I don't have a ton of time. I gotta let me see if something came up here. Is the movie you're referring to Sea Spiracy? Oh, is that what it's called? Did I say suicide? Oh, see, that's a Freudian. Yeah. Oh, it is suicide. I think it is no, Sea Spiracy. It is Sea Spiracy. Yeah. It should be. It should be called suicide. But you're I right. was trying to look it up. No, thank you for correcting me. Um, I, my bad. Yes, it's called Sea Spiracy, right? Yes, sorry, my mistake. Seaspiracy, as in conspiracy. So check it out on Netflix. And we are going to show it in a couple of weeks when I come back. And, and you know, uh, it's intense. It's really disturbing. I had a very hard time watching it. Uh, it's a heavy movie, but it's real. I mean, this, it just depicts. This guy's, this guy's a rock star, this young kid who put it together. It's just really gritty. Um, about like what's happening. And it's not easy to watch, which is why, you know, Al Gore nailed it. It's inconvenient truth. People don't want to see what's happening. So yes, um, Seaspiracy. We'll watch it in a couple of weeks and then we can, you know, all rant and rave together at the same time. Maybe do something about it. Okay, everybody, um, unless there's one final thing, I, I have to kind of head out, um, got to do the airport thing a little bit. But on this Earth Day, Let's you know, raise our gaze again, think about what our impact is, our carbon footprint, not just our karmic footprint, our carbon footprint. And let's just be, you know, really, let's be responsible. There's so much we can do 
individually and then collectively to, to step forward. Um, it's incumbent upon us, really. I think so. We need to do it. So thank you, everybody. Really appreciate your time. Um, I'm actually gone next week. I think Joseph is going to help me out. But uh, stay in tune. Lots of things are cooking. Interview-wise, Ben Baird was released yesterday. A terrific interview with a really sharp guy. Um, Kulreet Chadari, this physician that I got her, we're, we're going to be talking on Monday morning. She wrote um, this really beautiful book called Sound Medicine. Um, so we're going to talk about her relationship between Ayurvedic medicine, Western medicine, neurology, and the power of sound. Um, Ian Baker, Heart of the World, um, wonderful scholar on the um, what's called Hidden Lands or Bayo, first week in March, Claire Johnson. So cool things are coming up. But for now, gotta run. All the best, everybody. Let's dedicate the merit, send it to this planet that needs it on this day, and, and uh, I'll see you guys around. Thank you.